Hello, and welcome back to A Better World. This is your host, Mitchell J. Rabin, and I'm very glad you're joining us again today. Today, we're going to have another very interesting show. We have invited Dr. Zach Bush, who is an extraordinary physician. Let me give you a little bit of his background. He is a physician specializing in internal medicine, endocrinology, and hospice care. He is an internationally recognized educator and thought leader on the microbiome biome as it relates to health, disease, and food systems. Dr. Zach also founded the Seraphic Group and the nonprofit Farmers Footprint to develop root cause solutions for understanding human and ecological health. His passion for education reaches across many disciplines, including topics such as the role of soil and water ecosystems and human genomics, immunity, and gut and brain health. His education has highlighted the need for a radical departure from chemical farming and pharmacy as we so well know it, and, has on, and his ongoing efforts are providing for consumers, farmers, and mega industries to work together for a healthy future for people and planet. Sounds perfect for a better world, doesn't he? You're right. So, Zach, Welcome to A Better World. A pleasure to have you. Oh, very good to be with you, Mitchell. Glad very to be good. with your audience as well. Excellent. Uh, you know, our audience, Zach, is uh, thirsting for more sound, grounded, scientifically-based information. There's a lot of propaganda. There's a lot of um, bias for lots of reasons, economic, political, and otherwise, in circulation rather wildly across not just our country, but the planet. So I'd love for you, if you would, to please educate our audience here more about what you think COVID is in relation to a world of diseases and viruses and bacteria that we as humans and as a species have been dealing with for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years. How does this come down to being the most incredible thing or not? And what do you think we have to do about it? Yeah, big question. Um, so, you know, I guess we can back up to the kind of 30,000 foot view for a moment before Please. going into the concept of pandemics and, and all of this. We can start with kind of what is the origin of life as we currently understand it. And interestingly, we are currently in one of the biggest paradigm shifts and revolutions in scientific thought in history over the last 10 years. And it was really brought about by the new technology of genomic sequencing. And so now that we've started to untangle the web of life at the genetic level, we have had to reorient our entire understanding of life, but you know, perhaps most disruptively, completely change our understanding of what it means to be human. Mm. And this is definitely, you know, what will be the longest running and, you know, most challenging opportunity that we have as, as humans in our intellectual development is, are we going to be able to let go of the egocentric definition of humanity and start to embrace our role within a greater nature? And if we were able to do that, it would fundamentally change everything. It would change the technologies we develop. It would change the socioeconomics of, of the world we build that would change the, the structure of communities and cities and the like mm. if we were to do this. 
And so broadly speaking, if we take a look at scientific revolutions as a theme, we could look back 2000 years ago to Pythagoras in ancient Greece, who was a brilliant mathematician and was the first to really prove out that almost unbelievably that the earth was not flat, that the earth was actually a sphere. And it was such a disruptive thought. It was impossible for us to understand how we weren't all falling off of this ball, mm-hmm. if in fact it was a ball. And so the, the concept of the spherical earth 2000 years later remains controversial. Uh, we have a whole flat earth society that is very determined to demonstrate that there's... I didn't know that began with Pythagoras. Isn't that was Pythagoras, yeah. Hmm. And so Pythagoras, of course, you know, is best known to us in our, you know, geometry 101 classes in high school when we study Pythagorean theorem, which is A squared plus B squared equals C squared there. Was defining the, and the music uh, of the spheres. And the music of the spheres, that's right. And, and of course, the A squared, B squared, C squared is, is very much in line with how he proved that, that the world was a sphere, you know, understanding mm-hmm. uh, the, the kind of linear relationships of a two-dimensional object gave him the realization that Earth was not obeying a two-dimensional math. And so he was the one to break a three-dimensional math on the Earth. So interesting. But when you have a scientific revolution like that, it takes time. So 2,000 years to start to really, you know, before, and we still haven't got 100% of the people agreeing that, that the, the Earth is round. <laughs> and similarly, you know, we, 400 so years, 1,600 years after Pythagoras, we see the, the birth of the telescope. And so suddenly we have uh, the, you know, real revolutionaries of, of the space-time discovery starting to realize in the early 1600s that Earth was not at the center of the universe. And that not only was scientifically revolutionary, that time it disrupted our spiritual worldview. And so religions had to start to come to terms with the fact that, whoa, what if, what if the Earth is this tiny little speck out in a distant you know, suburb of a small galaxy that we call the Milky Way, yeah. that is a small galaxy within a billion other galaxies, each with a billion solar systems, we might not be alone. And so that idea 400 years ago, we were a speck in something much greater than ourselves, to this day remains very disruptive. And you're going to any, you know, right-wing Christian church, and they're going to have a very hard time with, with anybody saying that there's aliens, you know, and to say that there's aliens is to say that there's intelligent life out in the universe outside of human, you know, thing. And so we, we really want to believe that we are the penultimate creation and that therefore we are endowed with this manifest destiny that we can exploit, control, consume, destroy anything around us in the name of raising ourselves up. Right. By the way, just to say parenthetically, Zach, that, uh, the Pentagon has now completely officially publicly stated the reality of UFOs. And um, it's even certain that there are intelligent life and beings that have been found on earth that have been so-called unearthed, you know, and uh, this is very much gaining momentum, New York times, et cetera, in the public sphere. And I think that when we start to look at our behavior and demonization of viruses and the the story of a pandemic is going to be repeated with this alien story. I think that we just uh, justified the 
using the Fed to print $4 trillion because there was a virus mm-hmm. to stabilize a faltering economy, to stabilize a faltering empire. The only thing that we can come up with as a bigger narrative to print more money than $4 trillion is alien invasion. And so I believe that the reason Pentagon is putting all of this information out there is to justify, oh my gosh, you guys don't want to, you guys shouldn't do, do be, have a revolution against America because there's aliens and they're attacking. So we're going to print $40 trillion and we're going to protect you from the aliens. That, that mentality is exactly what we just did with coronavirus. There's this invisible invader that you can't see, but it's there. And if we don't, you know, deploy massive technology, it's going to kill you. They're going to tell us the same thing about aliens and it's going to scare the shit out of some of us. And, and we'll, we'll be very excited to march along a military complex that takes away all of our civil liberties because we're now afraid, afraid of aliens, big and small. Mm-hmm. And so I believe that the timing of this alien, you know, well, aha moment yeah. is not accidental. It's the only thing left that they can deploy enough capital to stabilize a failing you know, economy, a failing Interesting. nation, failing empire. Yeah. And that failing empire is not just U.S. It's Western civilization is failing. Mm. So they need a very big story to get everybody yeah. behind it. And how are they going to possibly unify a world behind a military complex now? And an alien invasion would be a good story to piece together so that's a theory that yeah, i have that really makes sense that makes but it sense. certainly is exactly what we just played out in this pandemic it's yeah like, right it's almost it like uh, a prologue yeah yeah, yeah. Prologue. but please return to this awesome uh development about western civilization and yeah. scientific revolution and disruption that you started on which will create a context for both of these subjects you know the that's virus right. and the so-called alien, extraterrestrial, and some are now using the phrase I like, ultra-terrestrial. I like that one. Yeah, I haven't heard that. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, the reason why this next revolution is so tough is, you know, we had to come to, Earth is round, the Earth is not at the center of the universe, Mm -hmm. and now suddenly with genomics, human life is not centered on the human cell. And so to realize the human cell is not at the center of the human universe oh, is really disruptive. And suddenly it changes your perspective on antibiotics to find out that there's actually 1.5 quadrillion bacteria responsible for taking care of the mere 70 trillion cells that you have that are, we would call human. And those are nurse mated by 14 quadrillion mitochondria that live inside of those cells to produce all of the energy necessary for a single cell to survive. And so you are in an extreme minority, you know, one, one human cell for every thousand other cells, mm. you are an extreme minority as a human within the context of the life that you live. And so the life that you live is explosively large and it is galactic in, in its, you know, universal expansion, its mathematical complexity, its uh, quantum physics miracle. And so this is the revolution we're now in. And when you start to step into that space of reality, you can start to realize, well, how is it that we're literally being told 100-year-old science around the theory on vaccines? How is that happening? How is the NIH and WHO and CDC coming together with a narrative that is so antiquated? Why haven't they been paying attention to the last 20 years of science to show us that we were built from viruses? Mm. We are not against viruses. We were literally built by viruses. More than 50% of the human genome 
is tracked back to a, a, a direct insertion from a virus. And so we would not be mammals, we would not be human without the viromic building blocks of our genome. Another huge percentage, some 40% perhaps, was done not by viruses, but through horizontal gene transfer from mitochondria and bacteria. Horizontal gene transfer, it doesn't need a virus to, 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 change, to exchange the information. Horizontal gene transfer is by one cell abutting another cell and, and feeding it information directly. Horizontal gene transfer is how life began on Earth. And so four and a half billion years ago, the first single cell life forms of bacteria, fungi, and the like started to come into existence. Mm-hmm. Actually, fungi were about a billion years later. But so we had single cell organisms going and they started immediately swapping genetic information, always with one massive intention, which is adaptation and for the purpose of biodiversity. And so those two phenomena, adaptation and biodiversity, were the entire matrix of how life developed on Earth. Every single exchange was with the intention of gain of function. So we hear all of this, you know, fear mongering around, well, there's gain of function labs. And I just laugh. I'm like, gain of function virus lab? Are you kidding? That's what viruses have been doing for three and a half billion years. Like, this is not news that viruses are doing gain of function. And when humans start to muck with that and all that, we can only be some sliver of the real potential that biology does in this realm of, of activating the genome through this biodiversity. So horizontal if, if gene we, transfer. If we were to scale up that idea though, Zach, of gain of function to ourselves and biodiversity and adaptation, isn't that what we're always doing as humans anyway? If I'm Every on second. the same beam here, right? Every second. We have yeah. to increase our gain of function, our functionality in the world to adapt to changing circumstances, conditions. And our in the design of our fabric is, is plastic with the intention of being able to be responsive to that. So we have this very malleable genomics, right? And so by 1996, when we first decoded the human genome, we came out with a startling discovery that we only had 20,000 genes. This was a pathetically low number because we had already decoded the the genome of the flea, Mm. which had 30,000 genes. So to find out that we were two thirds of a flea was a stupidly ridiculous discovery. So much so that when the first team said, we have 20,000 genes. Everybody laughed and was like, you totally screwed up the experiment. But there are six teams that launched in about 1990, 1992 range, six teams around the world that set out to decode the human genome. Mm-hmm. So the first team finished in 96. By 2006, 10 years later, the U.S. government finished their project. So, you know, but these these entities were, were speeding through and, and with each one, it actually got simpler. So initially it was thought we had 25,000 genes by that first team. And then the second team, the technologies had improved a year later, and it was like 23,000 genes. Now, you know, 20 years later, you know, 30 years later, we're, we're down to, to just under 20,000 genes. We now know the human genome is about 19,800 genes or something like this. So, so we're right around this 20,000 genes. A, uh, a fruit fly has 13,000 genes. The flea has 30,000 genes. So you sit somewhere between a fruit fly and a flea in regards to your genomic complexity as far as the genes that will go on to make a protein. 
there's some kind of poetic justice in all of that. I don't know. It's, it's checking that that hubris of humanity, you know. Exactly. Terms with that. So, how are we capable of doing what we do if we're only, you know, two thirds of a flea at the genetic level? And so that challenged our whole concept of, of genetics. And so we had to start realizing we do not come from our parents. We are not the result of mom and dad in these 20,000 genes. Mm. We are a more complex and malleable gain of function database. And it turns out that only one and a half percent of the DNA in our body goes on to code a gene. 98.5% of the genome was called junk DNA. Oh, right. And that junk DNA was thought to be completely dysfunctional, unfunctional, had no role in current biology, blah, blah, blah. But it turns out that what makes us human and not pig, we have the exact same genome as a pig. You just have to rearrange 178 puzzle pieces and we spell pig. So you don't need an extra gene to become pig or pig become human. What you need is a bunch of junk DNA. And so the junk DNA is actually, of course, not junk at all. It's an exquisitely placed gain of function database of how to control and how to change the behavior of the 20,000 genes. So not surprisingly, the 98.5% is the real intention behind and the organizational intelligence behind the the limited genome we have. And it's the malleability of those 20,000 genes that make us as intelligent as we are and as diverse as we are and as adaptive as we are. We're the only species that's been able to adapt to every ecosystem on the planet and, and therefore, you know, our consumptive destructive behavior is extremely dangerous because we can live in the Antarctica and we can live in the, on the tropics and we can live in the deserts of Africa. And so because of our adaptability at the genomic level, we've been able to adapt biologically and cognitively to many different challenges, many different environments. And so with this extraordinary realization that we are, you know, a limited number of genes controlled by an enormous amount of genetic information that's being inserted and manipulated or, or designed by our, our reactivity to the environment around us birthed the field called epigenetics. Mm-hmm. And so epigenetics was a realization that the result of the genome, the body that you will build today is not the result of what mom and dad gave you. It's the result of what mom and da- dad gave you in the context of right now. And right now is 1.4 quadrillion bacteria that are communicating with you there's around 10 billion viruses in my bloodstream right now. And those 10 billion viruses are a communication network of new genes that I may need to adapt to this day to day. And so I am constantly being updated by viruses that are being fed to me through my breath, through the, the things I touch, through the food I eat. And so I am in a sea of viruses, 10 to the 31 viruses in the air that we breathe on planet Earth. 10 to the 31 is 10 million times more than our stars in the entire universe. All right. This is a massive number. And so to come out with a narrative of there's one virus attacking humanity this year called coronavirus. Well, thank God the other 10 to the 31 decided not to attack us this year. And so, no, just if I may insert, no pun intended there, uh, that since especially you mentioned uh, epigenetics, um, Bruce Lipton, who's been a regular on A Better World, uh, considered one of the fathers of epigenetics, also told me in an interview one day, Zach, that uh, viruses are best understood to be nothing other than a thumb drive. Essentially, it's information being communicated. Just like you were saying, those uh, billions of viruses are updating our blood 
and i.e. our entire human system moment to moment. So that creates a context for me to great, more greatly understand what he was saying about right. it as information, not as something deadly as we conceive of it. You it's know, not publicly. a living thing, right? So it's not, it's not like a, a living thing, right? It, it, it is just a small piece of genetic information. Yeah. And go on. And the interesting way in which we stay in, in league with that is, is beautiful is that our body knows how to absorb that, that new genetic information into a single cell. And so I might pick up a virus today that I start to code into my DNA of my lung cells. Well, those lung cells will go on to have that gain of function, a more intelligent relationship that we might call an immune system to the world around me because of that integration. But the children that I, I go on to conceive won't have my lungs, won't necessarily have that memory in, in the round one. But if that genetic information is prevalent enough such that when I breathe on my child, I'm putting, you know, I'm putting out new information. And so while he would not have inherited that from me in my first you know, genetic download in, in the sperm, mm-hmm. I can later upload that child with my ge- genetic intelligence, with my breath, with my love for that child as I touch that child. And so I exude- In a sense, in an epigenetic context. In an epigenetic context, I can now, I exude in my own breath, enormous amount of microRNA, which is the result of my junk DNA that's going to go and form that child's DNA on how to behave. And so, so there's this beautiful dance that happens is yes, you have, you have conceived a child, but that child will rebirth every day with new information from those that love that child. And so there's this beautiful organic garden reality to life around us and life within us is that we are constantly updating each other. And so my wife, not a blood relation is becoming my bloodline is becoming my blood relation in a sense to our constant genetic communication. And so anybody that you are close in contact with anybody you're in a residential setting with anybody, a spouse, roommate, you know, college doormate, whatever it is, you guys are, are exchanging genetic information with the, the sharing of breath, with the sharing of touch. These are updating each other to this gain of function capacity, this malleable state of life. And so this is the world that we now know is real. And so when somebody comes in and says there's a virus attacking us, that doesn't fit into that new world that we've now discovered in the last 20, 30 years of science. Mm-hmm. So how is it that all of these agencies can get away with saying something that doesn't fit into the current science? How are they so far behind the times? And that's just a product of human behavior, really, more than anything else. So it's, I don't think it's conspiracy theory, really. I think it's just raw human behaviors. When something is so, when the paradigm shifts so dramatically that nothing we were doing before is right, it takes time to let go of our, our previous entrenched behaviors. And for the last hundred years, we've had this entrenched belief that the germs were killing us and we had to fight the germs. And so therefore, when penicillin was discovered, we thought it was the panacea of what and and really did become the foundation of what would become Western medicine is the belief that we have to kill the microbes. Mm -hmm. And so when you wake up every morning as a hospitalist, as I practiced hospital medicine for years, you really wake up every day figuring out what you need to kill. If you're in the ICUs, you're either killing cancer cells or you're killing bacteria or you're, you wake up trying to figure out what to kill. And you spend very little time figuring out which cells do I need to nurture today? 
If we thought that for a moment, we certainly would not be feeding the food that we feed to hospital patients. That shit will kill anyone. And so because we are so failing to think about nurture, about health, about the concept of healing as a Western medical paradigm, we have developed a hospital system that is toxic. You breathe processed air, you never touch nature, you're, you're, don't get any human touch. You're only touched by latex gloves, if at all. Your every orifice is, is invaded by some other, you know, neoprene plastic tube or something like this. And you're and awakened we, at three in the morning to be tested. Highly processed crap food, all of this. So we, we have, that is the system we built because we thought we were in, in conflict with nature. We thought we were in opposition to nature. The future that is now here, the future that is now present in today's science says that we are failing in our biology because we so separated ourselves from that nature, because we didn't, we disconnected from the intelligence of the virome, the intelligence of the microbiome of the bacteria, the fungi, the yeast, the protozoa, and it goes on and on because we have to so put ourselves in opposition to that through antibiotics, herbicides, pesticides in our food system, in our soil systems that are now in our air that we breathe. And so when we're breathing Roundup, 75% of the air in the United States is, is contaminated with Roundup. When we drink it, 75% of the rainfall and mm-hmm. the, you know, more, than, more than that of our drinking water is contaminated with Roundup. So we are steeped in these herbicides. Roundup, glyphosate being the active ingredient, is a potent antibiotic. And so we're literally steeped in chemicals now in every niche that's, that is in opposition to that, that life-giving force, that organic soil of life, which was the microbiome, and through its communication with life around it, the virome. So bacteria communicate to the world around it through viruses. Uh, we call them bacteriophage when, when they're exec- exuded from bacteria. If they're exuded from a multicellular organism like a pig or a bird or, what, or a human, we call it a virus. Oh, I see. That's interesting. They're the same mechanism. They're the same protein thing. That's interesting. Bacteriophage is viral information from single cells and then viruses we call from from multicellular organisms. But Mm -hmm. it's basically a communication mechanism by which organisms can can help each other adapt to, to threat. And that's important to realize because as we increase the stress on the planet through our behavior and we bring about the sixth extinction that we're currently in the midst of, that level of stress automatically induces an acceleration of viral communication. Mm. We have to produce more viruses from every pool of bacteria in Smithfield, North Carolina, with the big pork industry there. We have lakes, literally with millions and billions of gallons of pig stool that cannot be transported anywhere because it's considered a, a hazardous waste product. It's so toxic. And so it can't be used as compost, can't be put on fields because there's too many antibiotics and chemicals and toxins in that, in that thing. Mm-hmm. So those lakes of pig stool with quadrillions and quadrillions of bacteria floating in there are under this huge antibiotic pressure, which means it's constantly putting out more viral information from pig stool in these lakes. And, and it turns out the largest collection of pig stool in the world is in, in, in Hunan province, uh, where oh. you know, our current pandemic comes from. And so when we put quadrillions and quadrillions of bacteria under this level of extinction level stress, they have to produce viral information faster. They're looking for the gain of function to escape the extinction. And so when on the planet, we see- In other words, it's an adaptation to an extremely stressed condition. 
ecological, environmental condition. And this is how we have recovered from five previous extinctions is through the virome. And so when the earth went extinct five times, it never struggled back to some previous normal. It always came back more vibrant, more intelligent with more biodiversity because under the stress of extinction, the viral record left more opportunity for more diversity, more intelligence, more biodiversity, ultimately. Ability to adapt. Ability to adapt. And so 55 million years ago, asteroid hits the planet, kills the topsoil of all of the earth. We lose 87, 90% of life on earth. The dinosaurs disappear. Over the next 55 million years, nature never struggled back to try to make the dinosaurs again. Instead, she made birds. She made mammals. She made deciduous trees. We have flora and fauna today that never existed before the dinosaurs. Fascinating. Earth is not a linear progression. It goes through paradigm leaps of intelligence, paradigm leaps in design because of the way in which viruses work. Hmm. And so it is our adaptive mechanism. And so when we see a new virus, we can be confident, and especially if it goes pandemic, if it starts going human to human, we know that each of those humans have determined it to be important to their biology and it's replicating to pass it on to the next human. Our, the most controlled biologic mechanism that we have discovered in the body is the translation of RNA into DNA and DNA into RNA, RNA into protein. Mm-hmm. And so this whole universe the, the, of science that people have been giving a glimpse of, of like, now we're vaccinating everybody with mRNA or DNA if it's Johnson and Johnson, but we're, we're, we're literally injecting people with genetic information now to genetically modify them. Mm-hmm. In the same way we we're told about, you know, well, this PCR test is going to find these little segments of DNA. And so people are getting glimpses into this world. But yeah. I want to just boil that down really quickly to what sure. is the reality going on? Yeah, reality is coronavirus has been in it and reproduced by humans for over 780 years in our record. So we can find fossil record in humans of coronaviruses, although dating back 780 years. It's probably been there since our origin 280,000 years ago, but we can confidently say, you know, in mm-hmm. this last hundreds of years, we have had coronaviruses. And so now there's a new coronavirus. Okay, well, there's, you know, a couple of possibilities. Somebody says, says, well, maybe it's a military lab. Maybe this, oh, that's all possible. We certainly have the technology to do that. What we have failed over and over again to do is actually successfully put a gain of function virus into the environment. And it actually works because the environment is so controlled. Uh, what I mean by that is for me to decide to pick up a virus is a big decision. And so I've got 10, 10 to the 8, 10 to the 15 viruses in my bloodstream at any given second. Mm-hmm. And the cells that see those viral informations are going to, for the most part, reject that information wholeheartedly. It won't even absorb that information. For those that do get absorbed in the cell, there's a whole cascade of decision-making checks and balances to decide whether I'm going to take that viral, pro- that viral RNA and translate it into a protein. There's over 200 different proteins and over 80 other 200 proteins that are co-activators that have to be present for me to make that protein. Mm-hmm. And there's another 80 that, that have to be present as, as co-repressors to block other functions around it to allow for this protein to be made. So I have to have a whole sea of genetic coordination. A symphony has to play out for me to decide to make this protein from this virus. And so when you see a textbook or the CDC says, this is how viruses work, they latch onto the human cell and they take over the thing and they, they explode the cell. 
that's old science. That, that's like some belief from the 1960s. That is not how it works. Viruses are very well controlled. Our expression of viral information is tightly controlled and is a symphony of activity. Uh If we choose to make a new protein, it means we have been deliberate about that. And interestingly, in a lot of situations where that becomes an important part of our biology, a new update to our immune system, for example, we then will integrate that information into our actual genome. We'll take it into our nuclear DNA so that we have that storage DNA and we've had that update. Mm -hmm. interestingly if you look three generations down from me my genetic updates in my lungs in my bloodstream that i'm getting moment to moment will actually shift from my peripheral system into germline shift and so it will become part of the genetic record by by generation three the viral updates that i'm getting if proliferated they can actually be moved from into germline shifts in the same way when we when we put enough toxin in the environment. DDT was a good example in the 1950s. Yes. Transient exposure in the womb to DDT in 1950 led to no problem in the woman that was exposed, but the child that was in utero started to develop uh, peripheral mutations in, in their genetics due to that toxin, and they started to have disease. Their children, not still just getting the epigenetic pattern of the trauma, not exposed to DDT because it got outlawed, but but generation two is now expressing metabolic collapse, obesity, diabetes, blah, blah, blah. Generation three, 60 years since somebody was exposed to DDT is now moving that into germline mutation. And so it goes from epigenetics to germline. And so and whether when it's you a say virus, germline, that means it's on its way to actually become part of one's DNA. That's now going to be inherited from mom and dad at nuclear genetic level. And so in a fascinating way, whether it be a viral update that needs to be passed on to my generations in the first couple, it will be passed on through an epigenetic transfer system. But by third generation, it will be a germline update and and humanity will be more intelligent for it. As we pour more and more toxins, herbicides, pesticides, and the like into our food system, Mm -hmm. it will start causing a cumulative genetic injury that will become germline such that we will fail to be able to reproduce in the next 60 to 80 years. And so we are tinkering through our genetics of genetically modified food systems. We are tinkering with the very foundation of life, but we won't know it until it's too late. And so we do. Because it's generational. We already proved it. Is that is that kind of effect at all analogous to what's going on with the administration of the gene therapy called vaccine of the R uh, the um, RNA? Yes. Yeah. So messenger RNA that's in the Pfizer uh, product or the Moderna. uh, Moderna product, and then in the Johnson and Johnson, we have the DNA uh, insertion. So. In all three of those, we have a genetic insertion into, of information. And what we don't know yet is how, how durable that is. And there's something scary about these vaccines to me, which is what I just described a minute ago was an incredible symphony of checks and balances before yeah. I go and decide to make a protein. That's all absolutely biologically, intelligently guided. That's right. We have this incredible intelligence that allows us to not only exist within a sea of viruses, but to thrive within that sea of viruses. Now you look at uh, these 
these quote unquote vaccines that are agents of genetic modification, the scary thing to me is if they are right, that 80 to 90% of people that are getting injected with this are expressing that spike protein that they've genetically modified you to produce. Mm -hmm. That means they have overwhelmed the entire innate immune system and all those checks and balances with whatever else is in this vaccine. So there's no way they can just put mRNA and inject it into me and I start making it. I have, I have 200 checks and balances to make sure I don't do that. And so with it, with a robust innate immune system, I'm going to make sure that I don't translate that protein. Mm-hmm. If they have figured out how to get 80 to 90% of people injected with that stuff to actually express that protein, that's terrifying to me because that must put enough toxins in next to that to, to poison my checks and balances such that it can usurp my, my mRNA to proteins translation at, at a very high level of penetration. No viruses can do that. You know, the most, you know, most highly successful viral transfer systems are like Ebola. And there we see about 30% of people uh, expressing those proteins and going on to have symptoms of Ebola or something like that. If they're right that they got 90%, then they found a way to genetically modify three times more potently than Ebola. And so that's, that may or may not be true. They might be wrong. It may be a small fraction of humanity that's going to go on and produce spike proteins from these. So hopefully in my, this is, these are useless vaccines. Hopefully they don't do anything. That's what my, my sincere hope is in damage, right? If they do do what they say they're going to do, we've really mucked with the system big time. We have screwed up all the checks and balances and the behavior Mm -hmm. of, of genetic translation within the human. And so my, my sincere hope is that we, we are putting on the market something pretty benign. What we are concerned about, you know, obviously at the science level is that it is working, at least in some people. And what we see in all of the mRNA vaccine trials dating back, we, we tried it with Zika, we tried it with Ebola, we've tried a bunch of different, you know, RNA vaccines over the years. The reason why never none of them made it to the market is because they were so toxic. And one of the reasons why we, we were able to track their toxicity is because about 10% of the, the patients being given any of these RNA vaccines will develop a super antigen effect which means that we have overwhelmed their balanced immune response to the protein that we are mm-hmm. asking them to synthesize. And they, be, they, they instead will develop what's called a cytokine storm when they see a future coronavirus. And the, the scary thing for that is that we can now proliferate a narrative that coronavirus is deadly by the fact that as soon as we start vaccinating the population, there's going to be a large percentage of that population you know, if it's only 10% yes. or even if it's 1%, when you go and vaccinate a hundred million people, 1% suddenly gets to a very large million deaths. Right. And so now we're going to be able to show that that person, if we do PCR on that person, it's going to show they have coronavirus and we're saying, Oh, see, they died of coronavirus. But the reason they died was because they were super antigen sensitized to any coronavirus in their environment. It's like an overkill, pardon the expression. It's, an it's a turbo, it's an uncontrolled turbo on, on the immune system. Right. And that runs you into this cascade of acute inflammation into chronic inflammation and you get multi-organ failure, you get the whole cascade, which happens to be exactly what we saw with people who were quote unquote dying from coronavirus mm-hmm. in a, in a great study done, uh, published in the American, uh, uh, in JAMA, I think it was journal of American medicine, yeah. uh, medical association. They, um, published uh, all of the data from 5,700 patients, 5,700 patients admitted to New York hospitals at the beginning of the pandemic. 
And these were all patients that um, had very high mortality. Uh, we reached somewhere around 80, 88% of uh, death in the ICUs of New York, which is, again, Ebola is 30%. And so we really screwed it up. And mortality, like on the cruise ships at the beginning and all them, were, yes. were less than 0.1%. And so we, we, somehow we did something in the ICU environment to massively, logarithmically increase mortality. Yeah, what do you think that was? Well, there's a couple things that there's a couple things we did, and and one of them was we put people on high flow oxygen. And now this is not done. We we realize that ventilators are a death trap for somebody uh, who's presenting with this. So what did they present with is important with the 5,700 patients. They did not present with fever. They the the 57 patients were afebrile. They did not have an elevated white blood cell count, and they had no what's called left shift, which in the white blood cells, you suddenly start expressing a bunch of lymphocytes. And so if they had a viral infection, yes, they all tested positive by PCR, which means they had a small amount of genetic information in their bloodstream of coronavirus, which let me remind you, I have 10 to the 8th, 10, 15 viruses in my bloodstream right now, some of which are certainly going to be coronaviruses. And so if I test positive for coronavirus, and I'm presenting with a syndrome, for you to tell me that that coronavirus is actually responsible for my syndrome, you have to meet what's called Koch's postulates. Mm. And Koch's postulates have been around for 100 years, and they are the necessary clinical evidence that an infection is present. There has to be fever, there has to be pus, there has to be you know, elevation of the white blood cell count, left shift, all these things. We, we did not meet Koch's postulate with 5,700 patients dying from COVID. We instead had presence of a virus and presence of a syndrome that did not have any evidence of being related to an infectious process. Oh, and they connected those two together. They correlated they them. Together. They correlated these two events. So we definitely had a pandemic of a coronavirus and we definitely had people dying. But the people that were dying weren't dying from what appears to be a you know, infectious process. What were they dying of? In those 5,700 patients, they didn't have any elevated white cell count. They had no signs of fever. Instead, they were presenting with hypoxia, a lack of oxygen delivery within tissue. Oh. And so they presented blue. And they had early signs of liver failure. And then within 24 hours, kidney failure. And then within three days, their lungs would flu fill with fluid. And so they had no fluid in their lungs when they were hypoxic, which means they did not have a pneumonia. They did not have a respiratory virus. It was not their failure to, to deliver oxygen was a poisoning of the red blood cell. This syndrome that presents with blue patients that have no signs of infection mm -hmm. is very well described in medical literature. It is called histotoxic hypoxia. Histotoxic hypoxia has a whole number of mechanisms of action or, or pathologies that lead to it. One of them, the most common, is cyanide poisoning. Cyanide poisoning presents with blue patients who have tissue hypoxia at the liver and start to manifest liver injury immediately, mm -hmm. and then subsequently kidney failure, and then subsequently their lungs fluid fill with fluid, and then days later, because of all the fluid in their lungs, which is the result of a, a tissue injury to the lung itself due to a lack of oxygen being delivered to the lung tissue because of the hypoxia, they developed the fluid in the lungs. And then a few days later, whenever you put fluid in the lungs, eventually bacteria settle in there and produce pneumonia. And the person later dies from pneumonia. 
Histotoxic hypoxia is not a respiratory virus. Histotoxic hypoxia is not caused by a bacteria. People die later from complications of tissue damage and, and fluid in the lungs and ultimately pneumonia. Mm-hmm. Yes, people eventually get fever because they have fluid in the lungs and all of this. And so eventually they started to say, well, they got fever four days later, so they must be having an infection. Well, now they have hospital-acquired bacteria in the lung, and yes, they have a hospital-acquired pneumonia, and they're going to die from that. But it's not related to the coronavirus that was in their bloodstream at the time there. How long does coronavirus stay in the bloodstream when it's presented to to the human system is about three days. So the virus is long gone by the time the patient develops that first fever, or certainly by the time they develop the pneumonia downstream and all of that. The virus is gone. They're now dealing with tissue damage. So what causes the histotoxic hypoxia in the population this year? It turns out that cyanide poisoning is the most common source of that cyanide is air pollution. And if you look at all of the hot spots for what we call the coronavirus pandemic, they happen in high areas of air pollution, Northern Italy being the highest in Europe, uh, New York being the highest in the United States, uh, you get other pockets around the, the country down Including Louisiana. Wuhan. Wuhan is the highest in the world. And so if there was anywhere in the world that was going to have this problem, it was Wuhan. So then why this year? Why didn't, doesn't every year? Why don't we die? And the answer is, oh, shit, we do. Every year in the third week of November, we start to die at an accelerated rate from respiratory flu season. Oh. So we have come to term it flu season. But what is actually happening is that the, in the Northern Hemisphere, we are going into winter and we've lost the, the carbon cycle. And as soon as the carbon cycle of, of the green of, of the, the, and the soil system respiration, all of that goes into its quiescent state, the amount of carbon particulate in the atmosphere explodes. And so we get this massive explosion in the third week of November in the Northern Hemisphere of all this carbon particulate that happens to bind cyanide, that happens to bind viruses. And so the coronavirus this year is very unique because different than flu, it binds the ACE receptor, the ACE2 receptor in the lung. And so it's a perfect delivery system for air pollution and cyanide into the bloodstream. Oh my gosh. Why 2019? Because in, at, at, towards the end of 2019, we had the largest wildfires in history, in recorded history in Australia. And they pumped more carbon PM 2.5 into the atmosphere than any other fire system ever had. And so we were a perfect setup for 2019-20 to have the largest respiratory death in history, in recorded history there. But that that would be on track with not a virus, but with the amount of cyanide and the amount of PM 2.5 in the atmosphere. In May of 2019, just a few months before the debut of this pandemic, that happened in December of 2019, China, blah, blah, blah. The Mm -hmm. Earth Justice um, legal team here in the United States started to sue municipalities for too high of cyanide levels and they weren't alerting the population to cyanide toxicity. And so Earth Justice before the pandemic saw this coming and said, we're gonna have cyanide poisoning in great amounts come winter. And so it was a perfect setup all of the poisoning poison was sitting in the air and coronavirus is a delivery system for it. And so a new strain of coronavirus comes out of Wuhan, maybe came from there, maybe came from somewhere else. I think it's pretty telling that it showed up in Italy basically at the same time it showed up in Wuhan. 
which mm-hmm. says that there's an expression of this virus in many different environments. Many different tissues are making this. Many different stressors are, are producing this phenomenon. And so maybe it started in Wuhan, but regardless of where it started, it was a perfect delivery system for the highest amount of PM 2.5 and cyanide that we'd ever had. And so much of the mortality that we saw over the last year was not due to any form of infection. It was due to a poisoning of the population. Those are the ones that died. The ones that just get coronavirus will get a headache, a low-grade fever, some congestion, and then they'll get loss of scent, loss of smell. If they are previously have you know sensitization or are toxic you know in their bodies they have diabetes if they're on statin drugs if they're on ACE inhibitors they're going to have a more more potent you know result from the infectious process fevers may stay around for three weeks as they kind of cycle in out of you know different levels of tissue hypoxia and all of that because of the combination of the virus and the cyanide and all this stuff mm-hmm. and so but by and large if you develop an infectious process with you know, a flu-like syndrome or a cold-like syndrome to coronavirus, that's a true relationship to a virus where your immune system is getting an update. That's Koch's postulate, and nobody dies from that condition. They might have some residual symptoms. It might take them a few months to recover, blah, 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 but they don't die. The ones that are dying are the ones that have the combination of the presence of coronavirus with the cyanide poisoning, and they don't present with fever, you know, white blood cell count, all the other stuff. So there was two phenomena that happened this year but we were led to believe that coronavirus was causing death. And I think it's truly an innocent bystander. It's just a natural phenomenon. The cyanide poisoning and the, and the increasing toxicity of the air we breathe on this planet, we are reaching the brink of, of life on earth. We're reaching a point where the air, water, and soil systems can no longer support life. And our increasing mortality is symptomatic of that collapse of ecosystems, not of some new intense virus that's against us. Understood. I, I think these points are so extremely important for people to digest the distinctions um, and the way language and the old scientific mindset continues to interpret the data in that way instead of based on the new genomic information and overall scientific understanding. It's, it's really retro if you will. But I also want to understand, and that point is so important to make that I so appreciate your making. Uh, what is it then about viruses that ha- can be causing infection? Or is that not the case? Because in what you were saying, it sounded like coronavirus could be involved in an infection process. Yeah, infection is a very important way for us to uh, to improve our immune system function. So um, it, this is very much like weeds in a garden, okay? And so when uh, I started a nonprofit a couple of years ago, Farmers Footprint, and we, we work extensively with farmers who have been chronically treating their crops with chemicals, right? So you're 20, 30 years, 40 years into you know, a multi-generational farm that's been spraying these fields with herbicides and pesticides, and they have no soil quality left. They have dead dirt. And they're having a hell of a hard time growing food in it. So they're having to pour, you know, increasing amount of resources and monies into inputs to try to get that dirt to produce something. So they have fossil fuel derived MPK fertilizers, herbicides, pesticides, mineral substance, whole thing. And they're losing their farm because it's now so expensive to try to make this farm produce anything healthy. That's exactly what's happened to the American consumer. 
we have for two generations been pouring so many toxins, antibiotics, blah, 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 into our guts that our dirt it no longer is producing life. And so we're having to spend so much money on dietary supplements and, you know, smoothies and green drinks and all this stuff that was never necessary for my great try to balance it out to try to make up for the damage we've done. And so we're pouring all of this resources into trying to make a damage system work. When a virus comes along and goes into a proliferative state, uh, we know that all the checks and balances have agreed we need this stimulus. We need the stimulus of this viral information. And so it starts to proliferate the virus. So that a bunch of cells in our body respond, not just lung cells, not just, so now our vascular system, our liver, we start making this protein all over the place. We we start expressing the, the genomics of this virus so that we can mount a fever. A fever is one of the most important resets on yes. cancer. And so when you take uh, human cells up to 103, 104 degrees, it's a powerful way to kill precancerous and cancerous cells within the body. And so I believe that my body knows when to adapt. And when I get a, when I get a viral syndrome, flu-like illness, I get aches and malaise and a fever. Mm-hmm. I know that I haven't been taking care of my body. And so I know I've probably sleep deprived, I'm dehydrated, I haven't seen enough sunshine, and I'm, I'm not getting, I don't have a, a stress outlet. I'm, I'm accumulating psychosocial stress on top of all of that biologic disarray. That's when I get hit with one of these. And then I have to lay in a bed for four days because I feel like crap and I sleep my butt off. So I'm slightly sleeping 20 hours a day, my body recovers, and that fever mm-hmm. starts clearing dead cells. It, it sends cells into something called apoptosis or... Uh, autophagy, which is another process of cleaning up crap within the cells. And so it's a very exciting process when I get the flu. And last time I got, it was like six years ago. And I just knew I I was so needing this thing. I needed whatever information was coming through this thing. Uh, Likewise, shortly before the the pandemic, I got the worst cough I've ever had in my life. Mm. And it lasted for about a week, so much so that I thought I'd broke a rib from coughing and that. One night I was just like so overwhelmed with discomfort. I couldn't lay flat. So I just walked out to the, to the beach that was near my house. I walked about five blocks to the beach and I just sat there and breathed ocean air all night long. I couldn't sleep. So I just breathed ocean air. And by the time dawn came, I had recovered. I was, I was definitely on the mend, but I needed to breathe the ions of the ocean to get back in touch with that. And I had been traveling my ass out. I think that is what protected me. I've been traveling my ass off throughout coronavirus and all of that. Yes. I've never gotten any, any positive tests. I've, I'm more PCR tested than maybe anybody on the planet because I have to keep testing, and get on airplanes everywhere and everything else. Right. Every time I go to shoot a new film or whatever, you have to test every couple of days, ludicrous amount of PCR testing. I right. keep testing negative, which kind of blows my mind because I've certainly seen coronavirus. I've certainly, I've been around people who've had it. I, I know I've seen that bug. But the reason why I'm not expressing enough of the genetics is because I believe I got that severe cough and everything else in preparation for revving my immune system up for being extremely resilient this year. I didn't know the pandemic was coming. I didn't know that my job and my my public message was going to be so important this year. But I believe I was being prepared for a very resilient immune system. And so I developed this huge respiratory stimulation I didn't have much fever. I didn't have anything that I'm sure it wasn't coronavirus. I would test positive for antibodies and stuff like that, which I don't, Mm -hmm. but I was exposed to something that gave me some extreme resilience. And we now know this about flu. If you get influenza, your likelihood of getting coronavirus next year is much lower. And so if we were serious that we really thought coronavirus was 30 times more deadly than flu, 
we should have immediately stopped all flu vaccine programs because uh, it's already been proven in 2006, 2012, 2017, in three different studies, the last one in the US military, that if you give the flu vaccine, then the chance of getting coronavirus goes six times higher in the following year. So we knew this, and yet this year, how many people are being told to get the flu vaccine? If we really think coronavirus is a threat, we should have stopped flu vaccination. We don't think, I don't, I don't think that's the agenda. I don't think anybody at the science level actually thinks coronavirus is this big threat. Anybody who's doing viromics, I think is, is, has in the back of their mind, like this can't be the whole story. Like there's gotta be something else going on. But I can't speak for all of them. Maybe some of them, you know, are dyed in the wool in the old paradigm of believing that viruses are attacking us and all that. That that probably is still a group of scientists there. But for the most part, I think all of us are moving to a more mature understanding that when we see death around a virus, it means that there's a bigger story afoot. And we saw this with this pandemic. The only people that died had diabetes, obesity, insulin resistance, comorbidities, comorbidities. Yep. and among them were kidney disease, cardiovascular disease, and uh, diabetes. Interestingly, in the top of those is not lung disease, COPD, you know, respiratory stuff. That's, if this was really a primary respiratory virus that was causing pneumonia, that we should have seen COPD as, as risk factor number one. That's mm-hmm. not what we saw. Instead, it's the people with ACE and hip, ACE2 receptor defects. And so cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and uh, and your kidney disease patients are all put on ACE inhibitors and statin drugs. That, those are the two drugs you have to put all three of those conditions on. So even though it's three different organ systems that are involved, mm-hmm. the kidney, the liver, and um, uh, what was my other example? Oh, the vasculature. Um, so you got these three different cell pathways. They're all treated with the same two disease drugs. And those same two drugs upregulate our receptors for coronavirus. And so yes, comorbidities, but more so the pharmacy related to those comorbidities made those people distinctly at risk for absorbing too much coronavirus and therefore too much cyanide connected to PM 2.5 that that virus is drawing into their bloodstream. So we pharmaceuticalized the pathway for which this would be uh, updated into the human at an unbalanced state. So we massive fires in Australia, PM 2.5 cyanide. And California too, by the way, were massive as well. Well, that happened halfway through to make sure that we continued, you know, a second season of this. And so we needed another download of PM 2.5. And there was a lot of arsony that happened throughout California to light those fires. And that was documented and reported on everything else. So mm-hmm. who and why they're lighting fires in California is maybe political, maybe it's something else, whatever. But it certainly worked really well to keep a pandemic going because the more cyanide we can pump into the population, the more likely we're going to keep the perception of a viral syndrome going on as, as it cascades through the population. My heart goes it out. It suggests involved. it know, certainly suggests that there is an economic, if not political motive behind it, because this is not at all anything in the domain of life affirmation. There's nothing going on that really has to do with creating and respecting the life it, life itself. It really right. is the opposite of that. Which And, and makes, our, our public health responses would, would show that too. We told right. people to go inside, get away from the sun. Which get away, stay away from each other. Stay away from each other, get lonely, lose your job. We created 150 million new homes of poverty in the first four weeks of the pandemic. 150 million new poverty homes worldwide. 
By now, we're up around 350 million new households of poverty in the world. We have seen mental health explode in our children, high school kids, junior high kids, anxiety disorders, psychosis, suicide. All of this is exploding. The amount of child abuse, the amount of sexual abuse to women, the amount of you know domestic violence, all of this stuff has exploded. And so you're right. There is nothing that we did from a public health standpoint that speaks of the reverence of life or the support of life and vitality. Everything we did seemed to step us into a darker and darker place as a human species. But the bright lining is there was a equal and opposite reaction. Because mm -hmm. now 30 to 40% of Americans are very skeptical about the science that they're being told by the NIH and the CDC. Before the pandemic, that number was four to 6%. So we went from 4% to 30 to 40% over that year, an equal and opposite reaction to the yes. public narrative. Right. And so I believe Good that- old Newtonian physics. <laughs> we are waking up. There has to be that Newtonian physics in play. Exactly. And so we are waking up at the same rate that we do stupid things. And, and in that process, we are at a tipping point of human history, not only on this tipping point of extinction, we're on a tipping point of consciousness. Might we wake up to be a different species? May, might we wake up to express a completely different genomics when we stop stressing and fearing the nature we're born within? When we embrace that nature, when we realize we are a figment of the imagination of nature herself, and in our animation, we are the physical result of a huge sea of genomics, of viruses, the, the extreme intelligence of the microbiome and the bacteria and the fungi, and this is who we are. And so we stand here today as a beautiful expression of mother nature or God, however you want to define it. And in that definition of who we are, we are a sea of information. We are an expression of life itself. And if we were to rise as a population and embrace that, we will build a different future and the pandemic will have been the greatest gift that ever came into our lives. What a beautiful completion to this portion of what has to be a series of A Better World, Mitchell Rabin and Zach Bush, because <laughs> <laughs> there is a beautiful through line here. And that is an excellent way of understanding and contextualizing what it is that it is going on right now. So. Zach, I want to just thank you so much, Zach Bush, for being a guest today. And uh, would you come back on? Because this is, there's a lot more to be discussed. And uh, I hope so. We'll see how the schedules align. Love to that have great. you. Absolutely. All right. Thank you so much for your good work and uh, keep it up. Thanks for having me on, Mitchell. Thank you to everybody in the audience, your attention and your participation in this information. Absolutely. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Thanks so much for joining us. This is Mitchell J. Rabin for A Better World, and I look forward to seeing you all next week.